I'd gone back to the college that I attended and saw some of the other girls that I dated at one time. I said, how are you? It's nice to see you. How's everything? But that, it's just, just I just reckon myself, that's dead. I don't even think about it. It doesn't have to be. If I would make a choice that it was not, and if I wanted to go chasing off after them, and if they had the same attitude of mine, some relationship could be developed. But it's because of this relationship that that relationship is dead. Now that's what Paul is saying. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, H-O-L-Y, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but be a totally new and different kind of person in all that you do, that you may prove that that which is of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, he's saying you decide to do that based upon the fact that you have been redeemed from the curse, that you have been born again of the Spirit of God, that you're dead to sin now, you don't have to live in it any longer therein. That relationship should be reckoned to be dead. Now, you can go on playing with it if you want to, but you have to make a decision and a choice, and that choice is Jesus is Lord. It's the choice that you and I make in our heart that's going to determine it. My relationship to me, my wife and my relationship is based upon a love for one another. And if I genuinely love her, all the other relationships are dead. I can appreciate, I can have, have great respect for other ladies in this world and say, isn't it wonderful, the gift that God has given that person? But as far as that same relationship is concerned, it isn't there. It must not be there. It will not be there. How do I know? Because I see that ring, that isn't it. I can take that ring off and still have the same decision. Because I didn't make the decision with the ring, I made the decision with my heart. Now, I have known of fellows that have put the ring in their pocket when they go out for a weekend or go out on business trips and put on a graduation ring. Now, why? Because they didn't make a decision in their heart. Now, that struggle that goes on here, I'm just going to give you some examples of it. To show you so that, uh, but let me tell you something, you're not the only one that's having the struggle. I have struggles too. But now let me tell you how I overcome the struggles that are in my life. I go back. This is a very crude illustration because it, it, it isn't so, but I, uh, let, me, let me look at it this way. Let's say that I walk down the street and all of a sudden my eye catches a very beautiful woman. And maybe I break out with perspiration. She's just such a lovely lady. And I think, what a lovely, lovely lady. I've never seen such a lovely lady. And suddenly my heart's going, boom, 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 boom. Now, all of a sudden, there's a red light that goes off inside of me. I'm not talking about lusting after her. I'm talking about, I just see a lovely, lovely girl. And then, suddenly, a red light goes off, and something in my heart goes, your commitment is to Beverly. I settled it. What did I do? I made a present moment decision based upon the decision that I'd made in the past. And if you and I are going to have victory, that's exactly how we have spiritual victory. Every day we walk down the street and something comes into our lives, something that may be insignificant or something that may be very, very mammoth in our experience. We say, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to struggle with it. I don't know how to get victory over this. There's only one way. You face it for what it is and go back and make a decision upon your former decision. What did I say back there when I committed my life to Jesus Christ? I said, Lord, I give you my whole life. Lord, does that include this part of it? Yes. Okay, then, Lord, I don't have to make a decision now. Glory to God. No decision they made here because I already made that decision back there. I made you, Lord. So I reckon myself dead to that thing. Now, does that seem so difficult? The difficulty comes, and we're going to see it here, when we haven't made that heart decision once and for all as the position of Jesus Christ in my life. When habit-forming sins keep coming back on us, 
bad thought patterns keep coming back into your mind. It has to go back and be based upon what was my decision and my commitment back then. You see, you just simply reinstate that decision. If a, another young lady walks past me or a young man walks past Beverly and she looks at it, and if there's ever a question about it, if you don't know how to make that momentary decision, you go back and make your decision upon the decision you already made. I promise to protect and guide and love and you know, all those good things for life. I don't have to make a decision again. I already have. The question is, did we really make a decision back there? Now, let me give you an example. In the Word of God, it says now the new information coming in from the Scriptures says that if anybody is going to serve Jesus Christ, they must love God. Would you turn with me to Luke, the 10th chapter, and verse 27? Now, this is a repeat from Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter, and it's in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Every time they came around to say something to Jesus, they were saying it to tempt him. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? Now let me assure you, how you read the Bible is going to have a lot to do with your conviction. And I'm finding out more and more every day, your convictions usually go in line with your conduct. Rather than our conduct going in line with the Word of God with a lot of people, I find there are a lot of people that adjust the Word of God to their conduct. They want to do something, they'll adjust the Word of God to where they'll make it fit to do what they want to be able to do. And I have seen people who have adjusted and twisted the Word of God back and forth and back and forth to fit their conduct. But the Word's going to judge us someday, and that's the trouble. Many times we try to judge the Word of God in the light of our conduct and say, it can't mean that because I know that I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. And if the Word of God says don't do that, there must be a misinterpretation there. I'll have to do it. He said, how do you read the law? Now, you know what's written in the Scripture. How do you read that? Well, his theology was straight, he said, answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. That's an interesting thing in the Greek. It says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God out of all thy heart, and in all thy soul, and in all thy strength, and in all thy mind. Now, the out of on the heart is talking about the source. Your love has to come from the heart. And you know, I could spend a lot of time on that one emphasis again today. I don't dare, but I, just let me say this. There are a lot of people who try to love the Lord from their mind. There are a lot of people who try to love the Lord from their emotions. But the Word says that you've got to love God out of your heart. It's got to come out of the very center of your being. And when it does, then it becomes a stable love relationship. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God out of thine heart, and then in thy soul, in all thy soul, and in all thy strength, and in with all thy mind, or in all thy mind. That's talking about the spirit of it. If you love him from your heart, you will love him in your soul, you'll love him with your strength, and you'll love him with your mind. You'll give your mind to him, you'll give all your strength to him, you'll serve him with all your heart. The thing that's important here is that that's one of the first premises upon which Jesus Christ develops a relationship with you and me. When he says, come unto me, his emphasis is, come and recognize who I am and submit to me, yield to me, and trust me, and make that relationship a love relationship. Now, I know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and when we come and recognize that someday we're going to have to answer to God, and after death comes the judgment, that's the first understanding of our relationship with God, that we stand, as in an unsaved position, we stand under the judgment 
of God, the wrath of God that's ready to be broken loose upon us when death comes. After the death comes the judgment. When I recognized that and realized that I wasn't in the right relationship with God, then I began to understand what God did. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave as a gift his only begotten son. God was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But in love, God sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes into him. Now that word is into him means to come into a total relationship with him. Whoever believes into him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you come into that total relationship, it means that you come into a place where you love him. The word says we love him because he first loved us. And when we come into that relationship, the evidence of it is that we will love him with all our mind and with our strength and with our soul. We'll give ourselves totally to him. Of course, that's confirmed. You can always confirm the word of God with the word of God if it's, if it's being interpreted right. And Jesus said, now you remember, if you come to me, your love for me out of your heart has to be so great that in comparison to anyone else, it's got to be as hatred and love. I love Beverly, but my love for Christ must be so much greater that basic decision of my relationship to him has to be that I love him so much that if I were to compare it, it would be like hatred for her. But believe it or not, that's a very important decision to make. Because I have seen many a husband, I have seen many a wife, who have been swayed and pulled away from a relationship to Jesus Christ, thinking that they have to compromise, thinking that they have to do anything at any price to keep that, that one relationship with a husband or wife. But the Word says, that your husband and your wife must always be in second position to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Now, he doesn't mean I'm supposed to go out hating my life. He means that I am supposed to put my life in secondary place to what God wants in my life. He doesn't mean I'm supposed to hate my father and mother. He means that I'm supposed to come to a place where if a decision has to be made whether I'll serve Christ or do what my mother and father tell me that's contrary to Christ, the decision is already made. I'm to love him out of my heart. I'm to give him everything. And when that happens, Paul says a transformation takes place and I can confess with Paul the Apostle, I am crucified with Christ. My life is of nothing. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I'm now living, this life that you see me perambulating in each day, is not my own. The life I'm now living, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ living his life out through me because I yielded my life to him completely. See how it works? But that will never take place until we come to a position of a quality decision that Jesus is absolute Lord. Now he says, first of all, the new input that came into my mind when I became a Christian was... Because he loved me, I'm to love him back. And I began to love Jesus Christ and began to understand his love. And the more I read the word and the more I realized all that God did for me is mercy and grace, I began to love him more and to love him more and to love him more and to thank him more for all the things he'd done in my life. And my relationship grew, but it grew upon that commitment that I made that Jesus become Lord of my life. But at the same time, when we make that decision... To love God, the old lower nature there is to say, no, you love yourself. I mean, you, you deserve it. You're worth it. I mean, you, you just do these nice things for yourself all the time, and don't you let anyone else step on you. You just assert yourself. You've got rights of your own. Don't let anyone try to tell you what to do. You mean to say that just because I've become a Christian, that now I've got to quit and give up all these other things? Well, I'm not about to do that. If you think just because I've become a Christian, I'm going to have to give up all my old relationships and all my old friends. You know, I never had that difficulty, of course. They gave me up. They couldn't stand me anymore after I became a Christian. 
But you think I'm going to give up all those things? Well, I've got news for you. And you see, that's that old Lord nature that's trying to, if he can't keep you away from God, he's going to kind of discourage you to the place you'll never be used of God. And a warfare takes place. Now, how do we make the decision of which one of these we're going to do? It has to be based upon my heart decision back there. Who did I say Jesus was going to be? Now, whether we like it or not, you have to become a fanatic if you're going to be a Bible Christian. Psalm 97.10. You want to look at it? Ye that love the Lord hate. Give no room to. Have no place for. If you love God, hate evil. That's rather radical, isn't it? And the word says we're to love God with what? All our heart. All our strength. All our love. You come into a place of becoming very, very radical. Now, I know that the church today has compromised and compromised and compromised in order that it might reach out and win the world and bring the world to it into the church. But let me tell you something. Compromise has never won anything for the kingdom of God. Not in, in the light of God's word. Never. Never has compromised. Oh, you say, Brother Webb, but the churches are filled. That's right. So were the synagogues. And in that day, Jesus turned to those who were religious leaders who were compromising all the way down the line and making up their own little rules and regulations and their own traditions. And he said, you're like a bunch of dead men's bones. He said, you're, you're clean on the outside and the inside your cup is just full of filthiness. You didn't gain a thing as far as God was concerned. Your compromising constantly has brought you down. And so the first thing is, the first struggle you're going to have is what kind of a love relationship you and I are going to have with Jesus Christ. And God says, I'm declaring to you the kind you're supposed to have. It's got to be total. Again, that's why Jesus said, now before you come to me, you mark it down. Now let me, let me just insert something. I've got to. I just felt it in my spirit. I don't want somebody going out here saying, oh, Brother Webb, I just felt awesome. I just felt like I'm not a Christian at all. I just, you know, that was just too heavy for me. Well, don't say that. Let me just tell you something. If this makes you have questions about your salvation, check out that commitment you made back there because it doesn't bug me a bit. I've had other people come up to me and say, praise the Lord, that was a real blessing, Brother Webb. On the same morning I've had people come out and say, Brother Webb, that was just, I just felt condemnation all over me. Go back and check out what the commitment was. If that commitment was total, then there should be no conviction whatsoever. There should be rejoicing and praising the Lord. If I preach on hell... If a person says, oh, I just felt condemnation all over me, I say, well, brother, then get back and check out that relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the Word says He's redeemed us from that. And if we're redeemed, we're redeemed. Now, the devil's trying to come against you with doubt, deal with doubt. How do you deal with doubt? You deal with doubt with the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? There are many, many times after I became a Christian that I, I thought, boy, I must be lost. You know, I, I just don't know. I just don't have any assurance of salvation. You know what I did? I'd pop back up the altar and I'd get down again and say, Lord, I, I really... I." Take all that sin away. I don't want that sin in my life. I really want to yield it to you. And I, I went around with conviction. And finally, I realized the devil was chasing, making me chase my tail. And I got into the Word of God, and I came down the altar one day, and I said, Lord, the devil's been trying to tell me that that decision back there wasn't genuine. So right now, before you and all the angels of heaven, I'm going to tell you, that as of this moment, I do declare Jesus is Lord of my life, and I do receive full salvation from you in the name of Jesus, Father. And I'm claiming that I'm born again of the Spirit of God at this very date. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to establish it. And Satan and all of his lies, every time he comes to me from now on, I'm going to go back to this decision and I'm going to praise you because I know what I did in my own heart right now. And so every time the devil will make me doubt, I say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I turn back there and say, look at it. Satan, read it for yourself. I know the decision I made that day, and Jesus said if I come to him, he won't cast me out. He said if I confess my sins, he'll forgive me. He said that, that if I draw nigh to him, he'll draw nigh to me. I drew nigh to him, I received him, I made him the Lord of my life. I may be failing from time to time, I may be sinning, but bless God, his blood is sufficient. 
And I claim that blood of Christ over my sin right now, and I'm just going to declare it's gone. Now, I, I had to insert that for you. Because if the devil's putting doubts in your mind, you check that decision made back there. If that wasn't solid enough, we affirm it right now. And then say from now on, say, every time you come against me with that, I'm just going to show you. I know that I'm not perfect. But I know that I am being perfected by God. And that's the walk of faith. That's the walk of sanctification in the life of a believer. Now, let me assure you, when I'm preaching these things, your preacher is not perfect. Not perfect at all. And I have areas where I have to reckon myself every day. What did Paul say he did when he got up every morning? I know he prayed. I know he praised the Lord. But he said he got up every day and he what? I die daily. So what did he mean? He couldn't afford a funeral every day. He got up and said, now, Lord, I recognize again that as of the work of Calvary in my life, I was crucified with Jesus. I was buried with Jesus. I've risen to walk in newness of life in Jesus with the Spirit of Christ in me right now, and I just yield control of my total being to Jesus Christ anew and afresh today. I declare Jesus Lord of every area of my life today, mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, every way. Lord, you just walk in me and you talk in me and you live your life out through me today. I yield myself to you completely. That's what he meant. He did it every day. Now, Paul says, not as though I've already achieved, but I pray. I press. That's the, that's the walk of sanctification and determination. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said, I've been a Christian for years, but I'm not telling you I'm perfect yet. But I'll tell you one thing, my direction is right. You know, if I'm going in the right direction, I don't mind if I stumble and fall a few times because I can get up and keep on walking. When I get concerned is when I'm stumbling and falling going in the wrong direction. Now, Jesus said concerning that relationship again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He said, not really be willing to count the cost when you say you're going to live for me. And dear heart, I understand thoroughly that in the majority of churches today, they don't talk anything about the cost of following Christ. And God won't let me get away from it. Because he is perfecting a body in these last days before he comes that the word says is to be without spot and without wrinkle. Isn't that what it says? And if it's going to be without spot and without wrinkle, that means there's going to be some cost involved. There's going to be sacrifice involved. I am tired of talking about easy Christianity and believism. The Word of God doesn't teach that. God says, I'm not looking for family families. I'm looking for men and women who will stand upright before the world and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've yielded my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe I walk with him, you'll follow me for a while and you'll be able to tell it by the way I walk and the way I talk. There's a difference. He says there has to be a difference. Count the cost. There's a price to be paid, but it's a glorious price because he said everything we give up in this life will receive a hundredfold in this life and eternal life to come. These light afflictions for a while aren't even important in the light of eternity. I've had people say, well, I'm not going to become a Christian if I have to quit doing this or I have to do that. You, you mean to say that you, I'm expected to do You're not expected to do anything as far as I'm concerned, but the Word of God says he expects a lot. Well, I thought Christianity was free. No, it costs God everything. It doesn't cost you a thing to become a Christian, but I guarantee if you're a Christian, God wants you to be, it's going to cost you everything for the rest of your life. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It's the contrary aspect of what's going to happen in the last days concerning loving self. Now, I want you to know that I understand that in that many people today who profess to be Christians will not receive this message that I'm presenting this morning and the reason for it is because it was prophesied that in the last days that men are going to fight that one aspect of loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their mind, 
vehemently because they're not being demanded of them. And then when the church begins to demand it again, they're going to get very irate. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be God lovers. Is that what it says? Lovers of their own selves. That's one of the outstanding features of it. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn aside. Very clear. First of all, they're going to be lovers of their own selves, the scripture says. Then they're going to be lovers of pleasure. You bring people in who have made an, a mental ascent to Jesus Christ and begin to lay upon them the cross. Dying to self and yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you'll suddenly find out that that was not a heart commitment. And this old lower nature is going to begin to rule and to reign in their life. And they're going to find every excuse in the world to get out from under. But this is a basic key. Do you and I love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? And our neighbors are set. Jesus said, and he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said to, unto Jesus, And he was my neighbor. May I just share something with you? There's a real blessing that I, that I found out as I was studying this verse. A man trying to justify himself. He says, Okay, Lord, I'll love my neighbor. Now, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, The question is not who your neighbor is, but are you a neighbor? I'll say that again. Jesus said the question is not who your neighbor is, but are you a neighbor? When he gave the illustration of these men walking down the road, none of them were neighbors. The one was a Samaritan. The other one was a, a rabbi. He said none of these were neighbors as such to this man lying in the road. But he came along and he became a neighbor to that man. What Jesus was saying, wherever you go, men might not love you. They might not want to help you. They might not be neighborly to you. They might be downright nasty to you. But you be a neighbor to them and you love them whether they deserve it or not. That really touched me when I read that. Because there's a vast difference between me going around trying to decide who my neighbor is and me being a neighbor. Everyone I come in contact with every day and just let the love of Jesus Christ flow out of me into them. Now that suddenly widens my neighborhood, doesn't it? I know many times in my life I've thought, boy, you know, I just love my neighbor and I don't really know them that well. Now I've been so busy running here and running there and doing everything. I hardly know them. But God lets me run into people that I could be a neighbor to every day everywhere I go minister to them. And that's what Jesus was saying. It isn't the attitude of your heart should not be when I find out who my neighbor is, I'll, I'll love them. He was saying, you be a neighbor to everyone around you. You love them with the love of Christ. Let it flow out through you. That was a real blessing to me. Do we love God as we are? Or have we really made that commitment? You see, that's the, the, the total decision that Jesus wants us to make when we come to him. Now, we're going to find other arguments. Again, all through your Christian experience, based upon what you do with this decision, is going to have a lot to do with what happens here as far as this struggle is concerned, this pulling back and forth in your life. Would you turn with me to Matthew, the 12th chapter, so that we can read the 34th of the 35th verses? Matthew, the 12th chapter, verses 34 and 35. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Now, Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
Jesus was reaffirming what Solomon had said before. It's the condition of the heart that determines what you and I are going to be. And when we talk about our heart, I'm not talking about that little pumping, thudding piece of flesh that's pumping blood through our system. When the scripture talks about the heart, it's talking about the total soul of man, the intellect, the sensibility, the will, the emotion, all of that center part, that uh, psycho-cybernetic within us that causes us to do and to think and to say and act as we do. Now, we know that according to God's word that there are two different types of people in the world, and I, I drew up a little simple chart for our people when we started this message off to show them what God says about uh, truth coming into the life of a person or information coming into the life of a person. It's called the source of our word. And I showed them that when a person is unsaved, never being born again by the Spirit of God, this is what they have operating for them. Through the physical senses, information comes to them, and those physical senses, we know, are seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, and smelling, and that comes in through the body, into the soul, and out of that, decisions are made through the imaginations of the heart, which include the mind, the will, and the emotion. Thoughts come forth, and then decisions come forth, and out of that come words. So, any man who has never been born again of the Spirit of God can only receive information from this source. Now, I want to go on to say that many people through this source will hear biblical principles and receive biblical standards and be moral, upright people, but that does not necessarily mean they've been born again of the Spirit of God. Their conversation may change if they see something and logically it's truthful, logically it's meaningful, and they know they can have a happier or more full life by receiving that truth into their, into their total balance of life. For example, I know some people who do not profess to be Christians that are more honest than some who do. They have received truth, principles of truth, but they've never been born again of the Spirit of God. But consequently, all their decisions are based upon that which they get from the natural. You see, the Word of God says a natural man cannot perceive the things of God, for they're spiritually discerned. That means that his spirit is dead. His suki is alive, his soul is alive. God breathed into man the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Now, when a man becomes born again of the Spirit of God, suddenly he has a new input of, of information, and that comes from the Word of God and by the Spirit of God into his spirit, and that is fed down into his soul, and suddenly a whole new world opens up. When he receives Christ into his heart, suddenly the Word says he is quickened, made alive in Jesus Christ, and he cries out, My Father! Now there's a new channel of information coming in, and a warfare begins to take place in his life. A definite warfare, because now he's got information coming from two sources, and from two forces, the powers of darkness and the power of God. That's what it talks about in the book of Romans, that there's a constant struggle. That which I would do, I do not. That which I would not do, that I do. What was he talking about? He's saying, suddenly, a new source of information is coming to me, and based upon a quality decision that I was to have made at Calvary, I will reckon myself dead indeed unto these things and alive unto God, because now I have this new input of seeing and hearing and feeling and tasting and smelling through the Spirit. It's amazing to me how I will find people who have just been born again of the Spirit of God, don't even know the Word of God, and suddenly they'll say, I can't do that anymore. Why? Something has come and created within, a new, within them a new understanding of right and wrong. Watchman Nee wrote of a man who had found a portion of Scripture and read it and bowed his head and invited Christ into his life over in China. He went in that night from the field and sat down at the table and his wife set the normal meal before him and then sat some rice wine before him. And he said, take that away. She said, what? Oh, husband, she said, you've drunk this for years with your supper every night. Do you not feel well? He says, I feel very well, but take that away. She said, why? 
And he said, I had an experience out in the field today. I found this portion of a God book, and in it I found that I could, by faith, ask the Son of God to forgive me my sins, and I asked him to, and he did, and now that new thing that's in me tells me, no, I must not disobey that new thing, that new voice that's within me. He had received a new input of information through his spirit, and he was being responsive to that new truth that came into his life. Now, if you've ever been born again of the Spirit of God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have not, right now there's a struggle going on because God's Spirit is trying to bring this truth to you and allow you, by an act of your will, to be quickened and made alive in Jesus Christ. No one has to tell me about that struggle. I was ringing wet with perspiration the night I sat in the service and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit that was speaking to me and convicting me of my need and it didn't happen until by an act of my will I repented of my sins and asked Jesus to come in and be Lord. And suddenly I got up and said, I don't know what's taking place. All I know is I'll never need these again. And I know God's done something new in my life. Now, we're talking about the source of our words. When it all comes through this method from the flesh, from the natural realm, we find that many times our language ought not to be, uh, is not what it ought to be. But when the Spirit of God comes in, we don't just have everything change immediately, but we know that we become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And God's not so concerned about whether our steps wander. He's just concerned that our feet are turned in the right way while we're wandering. And he'll direct us, and he'll lead us, and he'll bring us into that place of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, if and when we listen to that voice. So that's how far we got. The words come from our heart. The word of God says that God searches our heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he said, Man looketh on the outward appearance, God looketh on the heart. Now, you know you only have to be a pastor a few years to get an understanding of what that means. I can look out in a congregation, they can look as pious as pilgrims. They look like sanctified saints. But if I were to go to their home or to their business during the week of some of them, you know as well as I do that they would not look nearly as pious nor as sanctified, nor would they look as though they had been in church on Sunday. Because God knows the heart, and there are many people who would love to come to church and love to be in church and love to have that kind of an affiliation, but they've never been willing to say, Lord Jesus, I give you the lordship of my life. I want you to make me to be what I am. And that's why I'm so glad God doesn't look on the outward appearance because there'd be a lot of people in places of authority that ought not to be there. God looks at the heart. And I really believe with all my heart when we get to heaven, we're going to be stunned as to who's there and who's not there. There are going to be a lot of very influential people, I believe, today here on earth who will probably never make it through the gates of heaven because they have learned to talk the language, they've learned to, to say the right things and to do the right things, but they have never yielded their heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That makes a vast difference. Now then, the word, the scripture says, comes from our heart. And unless we turn our hearts over completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we're going to be deceived because the word of God tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, you may think you know your heart. I know that wives a lot of times say, oh, I know my husband. But they may know some things about their husbands, but basically there's many things that they don't know because the heart is deceitful and it's not, everything is not as it appears. I'm sure that there are many of us here today that would say, I wouldn't want anyone to know everything that's down in my heart like I know it's down in my heart. And if everybody knew me like I knew me, like I know me, nobody would like me. You ever thought that sometimes? If, boy, who was it? Abraham Lincoln one time. Someone came to him and said, did you know that such and such said this about you? Abraham Lincoln very wisely said, well, if he knew everything about me that I know about me, he'd say a lot more. Because Abraham Lincoln knew some of the things that were down in his heart that no one else knew. 
And he knew how true that was. Now turn over to Matthew 15. We're skimming very quickly some of the things that we've covered already. Verses 18 through 20. If you want to see what's in the heart of every man outside of the grace of God and reckoning ourselves dead indeed unto it, Jesus lines up about 13 vultures here that are sitting in every one of our hearts. Not that they're all manifesting themselves, but we all have that potential for these things to be manifest in our lives. And if God were to take his hand off of our lives, these things would begin to manifest themselves again as self and the flesh take control. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Jesus had been walking with his disciples, and they didn't wash their hands before they ate, and the Pharisees came and said, Oh! Look at them. They're not, they're defiled and they're eating with defiled hands. And Jesus said, you got it all wrong, fellas. You can put dirt in your mouth and swallow that. Basically is what he's saying. He says it goes down, your body digests it, and it evacuates it, gets rid of it. And that's not what defiles a man. He says what defiles a man is what's in his heart and comes up out of his mouth. Now then, when a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I mentioned a few moments ago that a warfare takes place. That down here there's the pull of the lower nature, physical senses, Trying for all of our lives, we've responded to them and been obedient to them. Whatever they've said, you know, that what, what's the sayings today that have come along in these, these past few years? If it feels good, do it. That's the philosophy that we have today. Respond to the physical senses. If it feels right, it must be good. But that isn't what God's Word says. There's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So we have to have spiritual discernment to understand what God would have us to have in our lives. And that conflict takes place when the information, the prompting of God's Spirit comes down into our soul, the mind, the emotions, and the will. The physical senses fight against that. And we have to decide which way we're going to go because the imaginations of our heart and the words of our mouth will come from what we decide will come in and we'll receive as truth in our heart. Now we gave some comparisons as to what's going to take place in our life. Choices that have to be made when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We said that first of all, God's word is going to say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now that is impossible for the natural man to do outside of the Spirit of God, for no man can call Jesus Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And when we call him Lord, it means Adonai, Master, Supreme Lord, is the word in the Greek, Supreme Lord of our life. And so Jesus says, when you come to me, count the cost, make sure you understand that when you say, I declare Jesus as Adonai, Supreme Lord, it means from that day on, everybody else will take secondary place in your life. No rivals in your life whatsoever. Jesus is first. If the decision ever comes as to whether I will follow after this person, this thing, this possession, or this cause, and I find it contrary to what Jesus has demanded in my life, I have already counted the cost. I don't have to make another decision. I simply act on that decision that Jesus is Lord. you understand that? He has to be Lord. Remember he said in that day, many shall say unto me, Lord, Lord, Adonai, Adonai, have we not prayed in thy name and cast out demons and done many wonderful works and all of these? Haven't we been doing this all along? And he said, depart from me. I'll say unto them, depart from me, you cursed, because I never knew you. Why? They may have come and made Jesus Savior, but they never declared in that day and sat down and count the cost whether they're going to be able to finish the building, whether they're going to be able to win the war, that Jesus is Lord over all things in my life from this day forward. Everything I do, every word I speak, every action I take will be based upon that decision that Jesus is Lord. Now the flesh comes along and says, love yourself. Now you deserve it. You're worth it. 
whether it's the nicest perfume or the nicest soap or the nicest shampoo or whether it's the nicest truck or the nicest gun or the nicest sewing machine, you're worth it. That's the philosophy of the day. And the word says more and more in the last days that men are going to become lovers of their own selves. Pleasure seekers. But you see, along with that, God says, my people will just as much in the opposite direction love me more and serve me more and the evidence of the Spirit of God will be in their lives. So where men and women, I, I believe with all my heart, and I'm hearing it from every man of God that's preaching, and I hear preaching today, he said there is coming more and more every day a cleaving, a separating, a pulling apart of the world and God's people, and it's going to cost us to do the walk that God wants us to walk. And there's going to be a time when people are going to walk along and say, I know that that's a man. I know that that's a woman of God. Because there's going to be a difference. We've gone through an era in these past years where it's almost melted together. Almost blended together. We don't want to offend. It's just all love. It's all mercy. It's all grace. And God says, but first of all, I'm holy. I'm righteous. And when you declare me as Lord of your life, it means that at any cost, I'm going to be first in your life. Now, that's a decision. And you're going to have the pull of the lower nature. You're going to have the philosophies of this world pulled in the other direction to try to convince you that this thing is not necessary. But Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... And his own life also, he cannot, cannot be my disciple. The devastating thing that he says there. He's saying, I'm talking about total, unreserved commitment to me. And that's what the Spirit of God feeds down into our spirit. And at the same time, for the desires and the ambitions and the cares and the riches of this world, Jesus said, are going to come in. And that's why he talked about the different types of soil, where the seed would fall in the different types of soil. One would be hardened and wouldn't understand the word of God. Satan would snatch it away. The second would be shallow. When the heat would come up, the pressures of life would come up. It would wither and die. The third one would be choked out by the cares and the riches of this world. would choke out the life. But he said, if you want to find real soil, it's going to be that soil wherein the word of God falls. And it not only comes forth with life, but it reproduces after its own kind more life. Now then, the second thing, is Jesus said, when you come to me, if you love me with all your heart and you believe that I love you, even then the Father loves you, even as he loved me, then begin to trust me. You know, it's a very difficult thing. Some people say, I just can't, I just can't help worrying. It just seems like I can't help worrying. Uh, we have to analyze that in the light of God's word and not be judgmental, but simply be instructed. The word of God says, perfect love casteth out what? All fear. Perfect love casteth out fear. And when I go around saying, yes, I believe Jesus is going to carry my soul and my spirit and my body up into glory when I die, and I believe that he's going to give me eternal life, I believe that he's the God of all creation, I believe he's the creator of all mankind, all the earth and all the ages, but you know, I just can't believe he's going to help me pay my bill next week. There is something out of balance. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. Now, I didn't understand that until I was quickened from above and God's spirit began to put that down into my heart. He said, from this day forward, you are not the master of your soul. You've given me control of that, and you act upon that, because I've said in my word, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I will not, I will not, I will not let you go. I will not, I will not let you down. And we believe him. The word says, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. Trust in the Lord, Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, with all thine heart. And lean not to thine own understanding in all. Now that little word all is all-inclusive. In all thy ways acknowledge him. You know, many times we are very quick to trust the Lord when it comes to impossible situations. When it comes to an absolutely impossible wall to scale. 
But the Lord says, I don't want you to trust me for miracles. I want you to trust me for your life, for your health, for your strength, for your associations, for your relationships. I want you to trust me for your every meal. Even though you know it's already coming in, you look to me and say, Lord, I thank you for it, and I want it in all ways to be pleasing unto you. Now, the enemy comes along and through the flesh says, well, now you know that there's a recession coming. The economy is really falling apart, and gold is skyrocketing, the dollar is falling. Dear God, how am I going to make it through? I don't know. I, when I get to the end, I have I have a lot of the month left over, and my money's all gone, and I I just don't understand it. And I well, have you ever heard people say, you know, we're just not going to make it through this next year? And instead of saying the worship time, oh praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and then you get outside and you sit down in the restaurant, and they say, you know, it's really devastating. Such and such is happening in our in our family, and I don't know. It just got me to where I'm a nervous wreck. Now these are evidences of the fact that God, by His Spirit, is saying, get my word down in your heart. Get my word down in your heart. Open up and let the Spirit of God feed truth to you and receive it as the truth it really is. God says we should not worry because worry is sin. Now people say, oh, that brings me under condemnation. No, it shouldn't bring us into condemnation. It should make us to realize suddenly that God has made provision for us and if we'll just pass that by faith, then he is able to raise up a standard against the enemy so we can look around and say, why do I need to worry? My God is still on the throne and greater than all these needs. But you know how we get ready to trust God for our big needs? By faith, we trust Him for our little needs. We begin to expect God to do things in our lives day by day. What does it mean to expect Him to do it? It means that we confess that He's already done it when He hasn't done it in order that it might be done. Did that slip by you? It means that we confess that He has already done it even when we don't see the evidence that He's done it in order that He might do it. Because by the words of your mouth, you're snared. Now, we say it, of course, to our people. We've got visitors here this morning. I tell people, don't go around saying you're going to catch a cold. Because you will. I, I never desire to chase after a cold, tell you the truth. I don't care to catch one. I just as soon just bypass. No thanks. I don't need that and go on. But I believe day by day we can walk in divine faith, but we've got to watch what our words say. People say, well, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And in most cases, they do if they go around saying that. People say, I'm going to have financial disaster if things don't turn around. And in many cases, they do. But rather than that, we can, with our mouth, with our tongue, say, My God has supplied all my needs, therefore I do not have to worry, because He is my source. My job is not my source. Now, the minute we come into this area, we're saying that God is insufficient. God is not capable of meeting my needs. But when we come to this source, we're saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. You say, but Brother Webby, he isn't. I can hardly make it through. What have you been saying? Where's your faith? In what are you trusting? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, your intellect, your sensibility, your will, your emotion. Trust in him completely. I don't see it happening, but I don't have to see it happening. He said it, and I believe it, and it's mine, and I'll receive it, and I'll walk to the end believing. Now, that's the walk of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say you that you're not spiritual because you're not walking in this. I'm trying to tell you that there's something better to experience. Watch your tongue. Begin to fill the word in your heart with the word of God and speak the word of God. It doesn't make any difference what I think. What does God say? It doesn't make any difference what you think. What does God say? Philippians, the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. Will you turn to it with me? Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for... That's the prohibition. Be careful for nothing. Another translation has that, don't worry. That's a command, isn't it? 
Don't worry. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That's the prescription. The prohibition and then the prescription. Let your request be made known unto God. And then the promise. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, was that written just as some great oratorical dream? Or is that reality? You say, but Brother Webb, I'm in the midst of a storm. Glory to God. That's where Jesus said to the disciples, be of good cheer, if I be not afraid. If, he, if he's only the God of the calm, then he's not sufficient for me because I'm always seemingly in the midst of a storm. And that's where I need to have a God that can meet me in the midst of the storm and say, be quiet. Now, I can choose which I want to walk in. I can either listen to the old voice of the enemy and the flesh and the emotions and the intellect, this old idiot box up here that's been programmed completely to always be negative. You know, born in the objective case, when my foot itches, I scratch my head, always in reverse of what God says. I can either listen to that or I can listen to what the Word of God says and confess it and begin to experience it. Without faith, God isn't going to move. You know, it's faith that moves God. It's doubt that moves Satan. The minute you say, I don't believe that, or I can't receive that, Satan says, good. Now, I've got a foothold. I can put my hook in that, and I can begin to pull on that. I've shared with our people time and time again. Do you know what it was that really frustrated Satan when he came to Jesus and said that he found nothing in him? He tried to find a handle to get a hold of. He tried to find fear. Now, you know, he comes a lot of us, and he can send something our way, and old fear will really start rattling us, and now I've got a handle to get a hold on. I can shake that all to pieces. Or he'll come to doubt, and he'll just rattle our doubt all over the place. But when he came to Jesus, he couldn't find anything. That's why the Word says that Jesus was tempted in all manner like as we have been tempted, yet without sin, because Satan couldn't get a handle on him. He walked by faith. And God tells us that we're to walk by faith because that's our legacy. When Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, first of all, he's saying, Peace I give unto you, that's the peace with God. He said, I have now purchased peace between you and the Father. God is not an enmity toward you, nor you toward him anymore. You can go to the Father, walk right into his presence, and just make your request known unto God. He said, now that's the peace with God that I leave to you. That's the first legacy. Up until now, God has had to have his back turned on us because there was no provision for our sins. But now, he's just inviting everyone who will come and repent of their sins and come into his presence just to come as his son. And he loves them as much as he loves me. But then he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Now that's the peace of God that passes all understanding. That in the midst of the storm and the hurricane, in the very eye of the storm, that there is a calm that the world cannot understand. It's incomprehensible. How can you be so calm? God's greater than all my needs. My God is able to meet every need and every problem I have. I choose to believe God. Oh, let me tell you something. It's a sure cure for ulcers. When you come into that right relationship with him, that you cause your mouth to be controlled by what's in your heart. If you have doubt in your heart, you'll speak doubt. If you have unbelief in your heart, you're going to speak unbelief. If you have jealousy in your heart, you're going to speak jealousy. But if you have the love of God, the peace of God in your heart, and the faith of God in your heart, and the word of God in your heart, these mixed together, they come out in your imagination, and it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose imagination is stayed on him. That's what it says. That word where we say, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. The, the word is actually imagination. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I just imagine that tomorrow the debt collectors or the IRS are going to come and get me. I just imagine that's what's going to happen tomorrow. That's their imagination working. 
And in contrary wise, we can turn that imagination over. As Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, H-O-L-Y, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's nothing unreasonable to ask of you. And don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold to be a new and a different kind of person in all manner of living that you may see that that which is, is of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Others may see that. Now that can only happen when we are no longer conformed to this world but being transformed by the renewing of our mind and our imagination that others may see that that which is of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Why? Because I don't choose to have ulcers. I'm rejoicing in the Lord and always and again I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not to my own understanding. So what if my bills aren't met at the end of the month? That's not my problem. That's his problem. And I'm asking him to show me what to do if I'm to do anything or what someone else is to do if they're to do something. You know, if I had gone through the financial pressures before I learned some of these truths years ago, you could have probably carried me away on a stretcher. But these past years have been one of the most exciting times to me because I have tried to walk out what I'm telling you is my experience, is what God wants you to experience right now. Walk it out by faith. If years ago I would have gone through some of the social pressures the Lord has asked me to walk out right now, I could not have done it. But now you know what I do? I just go with a garment of praise around me. So some people must think I'm crazy. But I could just walk along and in my spirit singing, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. It just gets better every day because those problems are not my problems. Those problems are his problems because I belong to him. I am his property. He has promised never to leave me and never to forsake me. He said that his Holy Spirit would lead me and his Holy Spirit would teach me and his Holy Spirit would bring me into all understanding and truth that he would conform. He didn't tell me to get conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He said that we'll be conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. He didn't say that I would become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He said that I'm made the righteousness of Jesus Christ already because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. So I can walk in that truth, bless the Lord at all times, and know that he will perfect that which concerneth me. Now I can talk that or I can talk the other and I make the choice. But the fruit of it is what I sow. If I sow doubt, I'm going to reap corruption. If I sow faith, I'm going to reap life and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. You'll just do what I tell you to do, in other words. I'll show you what it is to have abundant life. But he said, it's going to cost one thing. It's going to cost a yielding of your life to me and an obedience to my word. He said, if you'll allow that to take place in your life, beginning right now, I'll assure you in the days ahead, you'll begin to see the fruit of that very thing. Your tongue will only speak what God says. Your imagination will only work on what God says. And you'll reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. You see, God says, now that's what you have to decide that you're going to be willing to let me do. And it'll all be based upon this one fact up here. Do you love yourself and want your own desires, or do you love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind? If you do, always act on that decision in every situation of life. And then you can confess nothing but peace, joy, provision, and prosperity in me. Because I am your son. The third thing is, when we are Christians, the natural bent of the natural man is toward a conditional situation. If things go well, he's happy. If things go bad, he's sorrowful. And the Word of God tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, 
You might want to turn to that so that you can mark it. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul is talking about the fact that the Corinthians had been made sorrowful, but they had sorrowed to repentance. For you made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. And then verse 10 he says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world worketh death. And I want you to think about that for a moment because that is the unrepentant heart. Unrepentant sorrow over lost goods, over lost friends, over lost pleasure, things that we want in the world. You know, there are a lot of people that say, well, I'd like to come to Jesus Christ, but I'm afraid I'll lose all my friends. I'll lose my influence. Or I won't be able to make the money I once had. That's not the kind of sorrow that brings repentance in the life of a believer where they can have joy in their everyday life. There has to come the place where they recognize that the sorrow has to be for the fact that the sin that's in their life caused Jesus Christ to be nailed to the cross. Now, when a person is still lost, you'll find in most cases their, their joy and their happiness and their sadness is always contingent upon what the circumstances around them might be. Now, that's because everything comes to the flesh, and if the flesh doesn't feel good, if things don't taste good, if things don't go good, if they don't hear what they want to hear and see what they want to see, they can't be happy. And so sorrow comes in. Now, that's, that's what the world has to offer us, and I know the world can have fun, but I'm talking about something different from fun. I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about joy. The Word of God says that the believers should have joyfulness, and the world keeps saying, look at the conditions around you. How can you be joyful? Well, things are terrible. Everything's coming to a cataclysmic conclusion. How can you be excited about that? Well, that isn't what causes the joy in the life of a believer. The problems around them are not the thing that causes this anyway. The beautiful part is that the Nehemiah tells us that we have a secret strength that the world can't know anything about. Nehemiah, the 8th chapter and the 10th verse says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. I want you to see a few other verses and share them with you so that you can underscore them and study them later on to show you what God desires in the life of a believer in the way of joyfulness. Now, before I became a Christian, I had no concept of this aspect of joy. Turn to 1 Peter 1, verses 7 and 8. Peter is talking to Christians about the trials they're going to go through in this life. You know, it seems strange you can talk about trials and joy at the same time. But he says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love. Isn't that wonderful? In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with what? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what we sing about. It's joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory. Boy, I, I just get bubbly whenever I even read that portion of Scripture because he's saying, I'm not talking about a joy that's conditioned upon everything going right. I don't know if you've run into them or not, but there are some people who always base their joy upon some condition. If I can just get this raise that's coming to me, then I'll be happy. If I can just get this automobile, or if I can just get this house, or if I can just get my wife straightened out, or if I can just get my home paid off, then, you see, or the, it's always a condition as to how they're going to be happy, but in most cases, when they get there, there's another goal that they're going to have to set before them in order to be happy. Now, that is not what he's talking about. He's saying in the midst of the trials, right where you are right now, based upon the Word of God, determine that I'm going to be joyful right now. 
I'm not going to wait till circumstances allow me to be joyful. I can know that the joy of the Lord is my strength in every situation. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Remember, it was in Psalm 115, 17, it said that the dead praise not the Lord. But if you are righteous, then you are to rejoice and have joy in the Lord. And it goes on described there on down. It says, praise the Lord with harp, sing unto him with a psaltery and the instrument of ten strings. And here we've got one with a whole bunch of strings. Sing unto him with a new song, play skillfully with a loud, happy racket. The Christian is to do that every day with a loud, happy racket. Just rejoice in the Lord and praise him. Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Now you know that if I start through the Psalms, I could never quit. I want you to see just a few of them. Psalm 97, 12. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Now, if you and I have nothing else to rejoice in the Lord over and be joyful in the Lord, then we just need to begin to stop and remember what the cherubim said over the ark. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And all the elders and all those around the throne fell down at his feet and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He says that's cause for us to rejoice to know that the God that we serve is a holy God, a righteous God, a pure God, a true God, an unfailing God. Rejoice in those things. Begin to think of all the attributes of the God that we serve that's alive forevermore and begin to praise him for. Now, if you have no other source of joy, just start going through the Bible and think of the faithfulness of the Lord in your life. And the fact that he says, be ye holy even as the Lord your God is holy. That God has a goal for us. And that goal, when we come to it, it'll bring us into a place of peace and joy that we never dreamed possible. Philippians, the third chapter, verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Finally, brethren, after everything else I've said to you, rejoice in the Lord. That's my conclusion for believers. Rejoice in the Lord. If you have nothing else to do, if everything else is going wrong, rejoice in the Lord. Then over in verse chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord whenever you feel like it, and again I say rejoice. I can say it that way too. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. There must be something important about that aspect of it. What do you suppose it is? The Lord dwells in the midst of the praises of his people, and when you begin to rejoice and praise the Lord, his arm is bared and he stands in your behalf. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's my secret. Praise the Lord. That's unconditional joy. Let me just share with you just, just four quick thoughts. First of all, joy is based upon forgiveness. No joy, true joy, can come in the life of a believer until they really believe down deep in their heart that their sins have been washed away and they know they're in the right standing with God. Remember what David said in Psalm 55, Against thee and thee only have I sinned, O Lord. When David repented of his sin of uh, adultery and murder. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, O Lord. And he went on down through there. And he said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Now what was he talking about? He was saying, Lord, before this thing happened, I was full of joy and song and praise to you. And since this happened, my bones dried up and I just withered up and all the moisture in me went out 
and I just felt like I was caving in inside and I was ready to die. I was miserable and I thought, oh, I don't dare say anything to God about it. But he said, Lord, the minute I said, forgive me in Jesus' name, you forgave me all my sins. And I want to say to everyone else around, remember the other Wednesday night we were talking about that? Just as soon as you find out there's sin in your life, confess it because God will wash it away and he'll stand in your behalf again. And he says, oh, he said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Joy in the life of the believer goes along with the understanding and the awareness that our sins have been washed away. If you and I carry known sin, if I regard iniquity, if I regard disobedience, if I regard rebelliousness in my heart, I know God doesn't hear my prayer and that takes joy out of my life. That's why I said there's nothing more miserable on the face of the earth than a backslidden Christian. They know what they ought to be and they aren't what they ought to be and so the joy of the Lord is not their strength. It's always based upon the knowledge of things forgiven. Now, the second thing is, joy is nourished in affliction. You said, oh, brother, you had to say that, didn't you? That's right. Joy is nourished in affliction. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, tells us that joy is nourished in affliction. Hebrews 12, 2. Paul is talking about the great crowd of witnesses that's around us. And in verse 2, he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He said, Jesus, knowing all things, saw Calvary coming. He saw the beatings. He saw the crown of thorns. He saw the lashes across his back. He saw the fists that were hitting him. He saw the hands that would jerk the beard out of his very face, the nails that would be driven through his hands and his feet. He saw all those things, but for the joy that was set before him. Why? He looked beyond Calvary. He looked to the resurrection. He looked to his ascension. He looked to his glorification and said, Father, it's worth every bit of it. Glory to God. Let me go. Let's go. Let's get it over with. For this very reason came I into this world. And that was the joy that was in his life. And that is what should be in the life of a believer. We should come to this understanding that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. In another place it says that we know that the trials of this world are, are more precious than gold. That's nothing in comparison to what we're going to receive in eternity. A lot of times there's Christians who go around you can step on their lower lip. You can put a three-foot feed bag on them and they can still pick up the food with their lower lip. They're just going around drooping all the time because they don't know that God says that joy is nourished by affliction. Habakkuk, the third chapter of the 16th verse. Now I want you to know that Habakkuk was predicting and prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Judah, that they were going to be judged by God. After he had pronounced this judgment, look what he said in verse 16. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his truth. Now listen to what Habakkuk said. An Old Testament believer, he learned this principle that joy is nourished in affliction. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet... Glory to God. He says, disaster's on its way. Nothing's going to work out right. Everything's going to go under. Yes, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he'll make my feet like hind's feet, and he'll make me to walk upon mine high places. The chief singer of this on my stringed instrument. Glory to God. He said, judgment is coming. God's going to judge this people. 
Everything's going to be destroyed, the crops, the animals, the income, everything. Yes, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Glory to God. It's nourished by affliction. Can we say that? Can we say that? My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. Strength for the day is mine always and all that I need for tomorrow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness and all and all that I need for tomorrow. I don't care if Afghanistan is taken over by the Russians and they sweep right down toward Israel. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I don't care if the Arabs cut off all the oil supply. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Now, you know, we've got to be careful because we get caught up in the world and we'll go to some place, some of you will go to work tomorrow, somebody say, boy, things are really getting bad. Do you see what's happening over there? We've just got World War Three coming. Boy, we're going to get ready. I'm going to start selling, uh, trading all my money in for gold or selling all my gold for money and I, I'm going to do it. You ought to be able to stand there and say, yeah, I'm just going to rejoice in the Lord because he's in control of it all. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. They're going to say, huh? Can't you just see yourself dancing out of that Work, uh, work, lunchroom after work, just dancing and singing, the joy of the Lord is my strength. They're going to say, hey, get the, get the paddy wagon. That guy's crazy. Why? Because it isn't a natural joy, but it is always encouraged and nourished by affliction. Praise the Lord. Number three, now I'll quit preaching and go to meddling. It is joy is dependent upon obedience. Joy is dependent upon obedience. To God and not success. Oh boy, I don't dare. My wife said, "Don't ever say that again. Don't ever you tell. Don't you ever tell the congregation that I could slobber your bib full again." And I won't say that, but I could on this particular subject. That joy is dependent upon obedience to God. Now, hear me on this: joy is not dependent upon success, and what the world calls success is not always what God calls success. And I want you to know there are a lot of programs and there are a lot of ministries and there are a lot of works going on today that by the world standards just looks like nothing but success. But I want you to know you have to look at the foundation. Again, I say it would be nice to have a church of 20,000 members, but I wouldn't want it outside of knowing I was doing the perfect will of God and I was being obedient to the Lord in every area of my life. Because 20,000 people are not going to do me one bit of good in eternity, and I can't have the joy in my heart if I don't know down in my heart I've been faithful to God and preach what he tells me to preach and to say what he tells me to say and to do what he tells me to do. And neither can you. You might be the most successful person. You might have an awful lot of money. And you know what's the interesting thing? Jesus tells us, told his disciples and told believers, he said, now you be careful of the rich people. It's never the poor people that will take you to court and mock you and try to make fools of you. It's the rich people. Generally speaking, when you get rich people, not always, but many times, you get rich people come in and they begin to give heavily to a church, they'll begin to want to control the church. They'll begin to want to control the pastor. They'll begin to say, now look, preacher, we don't want you preaching on this subject. We want you to get off of that subject. You're irritating a few people over here. You know something? I hope you know what I tell people like that if they tell me. I don't care how much they're supporting the church because I don't need their finances. I don't need their push, I don't need their encouragement, I don't need their strength because I have to preach what God tells me to preach and nothing can stop me from preaching what God tells me to preach because I'm more afraid of him than I am men. He said to the prophets of the Old Testament, if you fear men, you're a dumb dog. That's quite a DD degree to get, isn't it? Dumb dog. I don't want God's DD degree, let me assure you. I would rather have the fear of the Lord be my strength and to walk in obedience to the Lord and like I say, what may look like a failure to other people in God's sight can be absolute success if you're obedient to the Lord. And I want to be obedient, and I know you do too, praise God. Then the fourth thing, quickly, is joy is independent of circumstances. 
Now, I'll tell you how we can have that assurance in our heart. First of all, you have to always remember what God did with Job. When I tell you you can have joy, you say, well, Brother Webb, I can have joy if this circumstance or that situation changes. No, don't ever make it conditional upon circumstances. Because Job himself was allowed, God allowed Job to be tested as Satan. And so it doesn't make any difference whether hard times or good times come. If we want to have the joy of the Lord as our strength, it is not based upon whether we're having a hard time or a good time, a lot of money or no money, a lot of friends or no friends. It's based upon the fact, am I walking in obedience to God? Am I right where God wants me to be? Am I saying what I'm supposed to say? Am I loving the brethren as I'm supposed to be loving the brethren? Am I speaking God's face as all I ought to be speaking it? Then these other circumstances have nothing to do with it because God is at work in my life and he's promised me that there will be no test or temptation or trial come to me, but such as is common to man and he's faithful who will not suffer me to be tempted above what I am able, but will with that temptation make a way of escape so that I can bear it. Did you get that? That's a promise that you can put down in your spirit. There is nothing, there is no situation, there is no problem, there is no burden that can come into my life, but what, first of all, God has to allow it, and he's already promised he'll never lay that last straw on my back that'll break it. Glory to God. You say, Brother Webb, it's already there. No, it isn't. That's a lie of the devil. He wants you to have your faith tested and strengthened and pulled on a little bit so it'll go further. And so in the midst of the pressures and the trials and the testings, to be able to just walk in through that house singing, the joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, there was a time two years ago and last year when my wife and I went through the house, and when I'd come in the house, I'd see her with her eyes red, but I would hear her praying and singing in the spirit from one end of the house to the other. And when I talked to her, she was rejoicing in the Lord under pressure. And I want you to know it works. If we had confidence that this knowledge that's coming to us from God's word is true, that never can anything touch us but what God says, all right, you can go that far, but no further. If God's permitting it and he loves me and he's promised me, he'll never overwhelm me. He'll always make a way. Remember when I spoke one time and told you in the Psalms how he says, he'll always give my feet room to maneuver. He'll never get me in a corner where I can't get out of it. If that promise is mine, I can do exactly as David did when his men had forsaken him. His families, they were ready to kill him. His families had already been kidnapped and taken away. He had already been cast out of his nation. He had nowhere to go. He was a man without a country, without a family, without friends. The scripture says he stopped and just bawled like a baby. No, it didn't. It said David encouraged himself in the Lord. Glory to God. It was the darkest of nights. And everything had come against him. His men were ready to stone him. And the next verse says, And David encouraged himself in the Lord. Oh, glory to God. Lord, I'm so thankful you've never failed. These men are so fickle. Lord, you can have my family if you want to. It doesn't make any difference. I know one thing. You told me I was going to be king of Israel. I don't know how you're going to work it out. Lord, I don't care how you work it out. That's not my problem. You gave me my wife and family. I don't care what happens to them because they're yours. You know, he went, God, he said, Now, Lord, what do you want me to do? God says, Go get your family. He went and got it, came back, and on his way back, after he'd come through all that testing and trial, a messenger came to him and said, Saul is dead. David, you're king. Glory to God. You know what would have happened if he'd have gotten over here and said, I give up. I just quit. God, you've just done too, but that's the last Saul, Lord, no more. But the word says he just began to encourage himself in the Lord. I will bless the Lord I had. Can you imagine those men with rocks in their hands saying, that guy's got rocks in his head? That's not natural or normal for him to rejoice when we're ready to stone him. 
But you see something? David, he had knowledge coming from this direction instead of from this direction. Instead of listening and giving in to sorrow, he began to give in to joy. 